Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome back Dr. Will Cole. Will has been named one of the top 50 functional and integrative doctors in the nation and runs one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world. He specializes in excavating the underlying root causes of chronic disease and customizing a personalized precision medicine approach for conditions including thyroid issues, autoimmune diseases, hormonal imbalances, and digestive and mental disorders. In today's interview, we discuss the fascinating connection between the gut and the brain. Now, when we were fetuses, just growing in our mother's womb, the brain and the gut formed from the same exact tissue, linking them for the rest of our lives through what is known as the gut-brain axis. Now, you may have heard the term vagal tone being thrown about the zeitgeist. Well, it refers to the activity of the vagus nerve or wandering nerve. This is the largest cranial nerve in the body. And this nerve serves as a bi-directional highway for communication between the gut and the brain. So improving vagal tone has far-reaching implications on overarching health, including enhancing mood, upregulating immune system and digestion, and energy levels. So in our conversation, we dive into the connection between the physiological and the psychological, which is the topic of Will's latest book, Gut Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. Now, clinical studies show us that chronic stress unresolved trauma, shame, and environmental toxicity can impact the body's underlying biochemistry, creating chronic inflammatory problems and metabolic and brain health issues. Now, the fight-or-flight response is a natural adaptive biological feature, but modernity has created an evolutionary mismatch. And when we're exposed to chronic stress, the HPA axis, that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis increases cortisol and adrenaline levels. And this affects blood sugar and blood pressure and heart rate and increases inflammation. And this is why managing stress response is essential to fostering balance and homeostasis in the body. So we'll share some protocols you can use to improve gut function, such as consuming probiotic fermented foods. And we talk about cooked foods like soups and stews, that allow the gut to repair, reducing the workload of digestion. Will explains how taking care of your gut also takes care of your brain. And he also shares some great recipes and ingredients included in his new book. So I always love talking with Will, and every time I learn something new. But before we dive in, I want to let you know about Will's upcoming new commune course, on the topic of intuitive fasting. This is such a great topic and something very personal for me. So you can sign up at onecommune.com slash Will Cole. That's W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E, Will Cole. And uh, if you're interested in courses more generally on functional medicine and nutrition, gut health, meditation, and Ayurveda, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire treasure trove of courses, which now number more than 130 on spiritual and physical health. So just go over to onecommune.com trial and please support 
this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Will Cole. Cole. Hey, my friend. All right. Great to be with you, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. I'm really excited to talk um, about your book, Gut Feelings. Um, wonderful title and just wonderful content in general. Really enjoyed it. So let's perhaps start with the nervous system in general. So, you know, we generally associate the nervous system with the control panel of the brain. Um, we're somewhat familiar with the autonomic nervous system that governs everything that's happening below the crust of consciousness as a sympathetic and the parasympathetic, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But we don't generally think about the gut mm -hmm. and the nervous system in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. Is the gut part of the nervous system? It's Yeah, it's a central part of how the nervous system regulates itself. And it's a, it's an aspect, an extension, if you will, because the gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. So when babies were growing, all the babies that are currently growing in their mother's womb, <laughs> the gut and brain are formed from that same tissue and they're linked for the rest of our life through what's known as the gut-brain axis. So when researchers are talking about the connection between the gut and the brain, they're really talking about this bi-directional crosstalk between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut and the autonomic nervous system is implicated in that. And I mean, look, that, that cliche of the parasympathetic, it's the resting, digesting um, aspect of it. So that impaired with the enteric nervous system is a central part of our feelings, our mood, how we feel from a mental health standpoint. Mm. So the brain of the gut, is that called the enteric yeah, system. That's the yeah. guts nervous system. Got the, it. The specific one, but it's part of the larger uh, communication line between the gut and the brain. Right, and this is a bi-directional two-lane highway. Yeah, it is. So that's why people that have, you know, they can have someone that has traumatic brain injuries or has some injury to their their head or neck can impact digestion, but can conversely people that have bacterial overgrowths or Leaky gut syndrome is implicated in there. Other GI issues can impact our mood. Hmm. They both impact each other. Yeah. So there are actually neurons down there in your gut? Mm -hmm. Actual neurons. Yeah, actual neurons. So And neurotransmitter production. I mean, everyone, most people that are interested in wellness know about 95% of serotonin is made in the gut. 50% of dopamine is made in the gut. And they work upon, they don't actually pass through the blood-brain barrier, those ones that are produced in the gut, but they do work upon the vagus nerve, right. which is the largest cranial nerve in the body and it works on GI motility and that master communication uh, as far as our mood is concerned. Mm. Okay, so we're establishing how the gut and brain are connected. You yeah. mentioned the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. So let's talk, let's cover hover there for a mm -hmm. second because it's such a major thoroughfare. So can you unpack the nature of the vagus nerve? What does mm -hmm. it do? How do we, how do we want to treat it, et cetera? Sure. So the vagus nerve, it, it gets its name from the word wandering, I believe in Latin. 
And it's the wandering, wandering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the wandering longest cranial nerve in the body. And it's one of the major players in the resting, digesting, parasympathetic aspect, mm. which most of us, like when we, in the clinical sense, when I'm looking at patients and doing workup and running labs, and even in conversations that people have in the health and wellness world or podcasts or books, when they when you hear the term nervous system dysregulation, they typically mean an overactive sympathetic fight or flight stressed state and an underactive parasympathetic, which is really a vagus nerve issue. Mm. It's what researchers refer to as poor vagal tone or low vagal tone. Mm. So a lot of gut feelings, a lot of my book is really talking about things that we do clinically for our telehealth patients and what's in the scientific literature. What are ways to support vagal tone to regulate the nervous system, which will impact not only our mood, but also our immune system, our energy levels, so it has a ripple, a far-reaching ripple effect when you improve vagal tone. Right. So basically, there's protocols that you can adopt to upregulate your vagal tone. Mm-hmm. And through doing so, you can actually improve gut function. Yeah, you not only improve GI motility and gut function, which you're absolutely right. People that have sluggish GI motility, like a normal bowel movement, many people aren't having those and you know the, the cliche at the clinic is one to two snakes a day. That's as far as on the Bristol chart, one to two snakes a day as far as frequency and formation. See, in the canyons here, we have rattlesnakes. So <laughs> yeah, one no, to two snakes a day yeah. might not have the same yes. meaning that it does yes. in Pittsburgh. But no, right. <laughs> we're not talking boa constrictors or rattlesnakes. <laughs> we're talking about right bowel movements movements. yeah going going poop as we say but the uh but it's it's important for people to realize because many people it's because they'll think well it's my everyday they'll normalize it for themselves and they're going like every two or three days or it's always sluggish or it's always loose and unformed and that's a good window into gut health um which may involve the vagus nerve and bacterial overgrowth and other yeah. inflammatory issues that may be at play here. But it's way more, when you're talking about vagal tone, it's way more than just GI motility. It's also people that are dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome, people that are dealing with different autoimmune problems, people that are dealing with anxiety and depression and, and brain fog. Yeah. So those are all, whether you have digestive issues or brain or hormonal or inflammatory issues, immune issues, you want to be interested in vagal tone. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there is the vagus nerve, which um, you could sort of classify as the asphalt, the highway, mm-hmm. re- really, between the gut and the brain. But then there's these messengers, which like delivery men, for example. Um, and those could be, let's say, hormones, right? Mm-hmm. So what what's the relationship there between the gut and the brain as it pertains to these little chemical mm-hmm. homing pigeons? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, when you're looking at the neurotransmitters that are made in the gut, they are working upon GI motility, most of them, like the serotonin and dopamine that I talked about that then communicates with the, um, with the vagus nerve. But if you, even if you look at systemically, I see this a lot clinically where it, you have to kind of figure out what's the chicken or the egg, right? Because you have what's called the hypothalamic pituitary endocrine axis it could be ovaries testicles it could be thyroid it could be the adrenal glands and though it's a big negative feedback loop because oftentimes there i mean 
the brain's communication with the rest of the body are hormones and sluggish thyroid function, low thyroid function, for example, let alone all the other hormone potential chemical communicators, mediators, messengers, uh, will slow GI motility. Hmm. So you have to do, I'm, I'm putting my, my clinical hat on right now, but the what came first? Sometimes it's the gut issues that's impacting the endocrine issues. Sometimes it's the endocrine issues that's impacting the gut, right. gut issues. Sometimes it doesn't matter, and you have to deal with both of them. It doesn't matter what came first. So there's also hormones like ghrelin, for example, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, that's produced. Is that produced in the stomach? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and parietal cells. So it's yeah, that's a signaling. It's satiety signaling, hunger signaling between leptin and ghrelin and... We quantify, we don't really quantify ghrelin per se, but what one one thing we do, which is a satiety signaling, um, hunger signaling molecule is leptin, mm -hmm. which you can quantify that on a blood test. And we will oftentimes see, and what this is a good kind of segue, I guess, from a neuroaminoendocrine axis standpoint, is the higher leptin levels in people that have these poor vagal tones, these chronic inflammatory problems, these metabolic issues. And they are having trouble with losing weight or they're having trouble with fatigue. Um, and many people settle for it and they don't realize that these are things that they have, they have agency over. They can overcome yeah. and improve hormonal signaling. Yeah. Well, then the brain also becomes sort of leptin resistant over time yeah. in, in yeah. the, um, uh, you know, when there's too much leptin in the system, et cetera. Um, you also mentioned... Well, serotonin, for example, which is a very famous, celebrated neurotransmitter yeah. that has something to do with mood regulation. Exactly what it does have to do with mood regulation has become somewhat unclear. We yeah. could talk about that. Yeah. But I think the point here more is that there's gut bacteria that given the proper ingredients and precursors like tryptophan, for example, mm -hmm. there's some gut bacteria like Enterococcus that actually synthesizes mm -hmm. neurotransmitters like serotonin yeah. um, and dopamine, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all of this, there's all this yeah. talk, all, all this crosstalk cross going yeah. on nonstop. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we've been under the impression generally mm -hmm. that, the mind is here and the body is here mm -hmm. and never the two shall meet, right? Yeah. I mean, Descartes said, cogito ergo sum, right? You know, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. Forget about the body. <laughs> it's yeah. like the body it has nothing to do with being. Just thinking does. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, you know, through all of this uh, work that you and many of your colleagues have been in too, you know, we're starting to understand yeah. that these systems are connected. Very much so. Perhaps we can start with inputs and conditions that dysregulate the gut mm -hmm. that then might have impacts on brain or psychology mm -hmm. or mood or cognitive function. Mm -hmm. Start there. Yeah. So these are things that we quantify on labs. Um, and the most common one would be, I would say, let's just the umbrella of dysbiosis in the gut. And that's a general term of bacterial overgrowth, bacterial imbalances of opportunistic and pathogenic bacteria. There's nothing wrong with ba ba 
bacteria, right? Ben, I've it's interesting. I'm so used to talking about bacteria. I heard someone say, I thought all it was an Uber driver. I have the best conversations with Uber drivers. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, what do you do for work? And it comes up. We talk about poop within five minutes, <laughs> gut health, and completely normal. We talked with a Lyft driver. But mm. he said to me, Oh, I thought bacteria was bad. I didn't even know that you'd even want bacteria, right. which I thought, Oh, wow, that's an interesting thing for some. The, the things that bacteria is good but and even opportunistic bacteria can be a part of our microbiome there's nothing inherently evil about it you just don't want a lack of balance you don't want the, like i think of them as weeds that can overgrow in this gut garden there's nothing wrong with weeds they're part of nature <laughs> but yeah. it's like the lack of homeostasis it's the goldilocks principle not too much not too low but just right and that's same with bacteria in the gut. You don't want a lack of that regulatory checks and balances, I guess, if you will, um, that many people have. So you can quantify this on labs, these uh, opportunistic and pathogenic bacterial uh, overgrowth that are higher in what are called lipopolysaccharides or LPS, mm, right. which are bacterial endotoxins, which we know it can link, it's they can increase leaky gut syndrome. They can cause like... Um, gut-centric inflammation levels. We can measure things like calprotectin and beta-glucuronidase and lactoferrin levels that are just the immune system kind of upregulating, which these bacteria, amongst other things, it's not just about them, that are implicated in these immune upregulation of the immune system, i.e. chronic inflammation. Mm -hmm. uh, so SIBO is a specific subset of overgrowth. It's by its definition not really opportunistic or pathogenic bacteria as much as normal quote-unquote bacteria overgrowing where it shouldn't be coming so up it's a locational issue the, yeah they've yeah. migrated they've they've moved neighborhoods into the small intestine where they shouldn't be right. which it's one of the leading mechanistic causes of ibs irritable bowel syndrome acid reflux it's associated with many autoimmune issues and anxiety depression fatigue brain fog so it, there's a lot of gut-centric components to many issues so Top of my list would be those things. And then from that, I mean, when you're talking about leaky gut syndrome and things passing through the gut that shouldn't be able to pass through the gut, like those bacterial toxins, like undigested food proteins, that can trigger a cascade of inflammation systemically. So really what happens in the gut isn't just staying in the gut. Hmm. It's, it's like Vegas. So on the Vegas spelled differently. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I haven't quite made that connection before. Um, um, yeah. So let's break that down because I think as you say, your, your Uber driver has a negative association with bacteria. Right. He's and not, you, you don't want that. Yeah, I get it. I mean, what often gets uh, popularized are like H. pylori or salmonella or E. coli or yeah. essentially bad gut bugs, even mm -hmm. though they're not really necessarily bad, but when they're in a state of imbalance, they, they become yeah. um, bad. And um, But, you know, <laughs> humans are curious beasts. Mm -hmm. Our consciousness gives us, for better or worse, um, an understanding of our own mortality. So for like tens of thousands of years, we went out and killed everything that was bigger than us. And then once they were done with, then the last 150 years is trying to kill everything that's smaller than us. Oh. <laughs> so we took on bacteria and viruses, et cetera. 
and bacteria became you know painted as the villain mm -hmm. and so i think the popular association yeah. is that you know these are pathogens and they must be stopped in their tracks mm -hmm. um but as you point out there's many many um good gut bacteria in fact mm -hmm. they outnumber the gut the, the bad bacteria yeah. um but when we don't take care of them it's like we're the landlord and they're the tenants mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. and you know when we're not like keeping up with our services, they're mm -hmm. not going to pay their rent and yeah. not do a good job. Um, so, you know, you talk specifically about leaky gut and intestinal permeability. What are some of the contributors, the primary contributors to that epithelial wall, those tight junctions mm -hmm. starting to spread apart that creates that opportunity for those mm -hmm. LPSs to shoot through mm -hmm. and cause all this inflammation havoc? Yeah, so we measure, amongst other things, you can measure zonulin, which is the protein that governs gut lining permeability. So you can measure that via stool test. Mm. You can measure that via blood and both. Um, and, and and not just that. You can measure antibodies too. There's lipopolysaccharides via as, as well. So this isn't just some theoretical thing. This is something you, we, we run labs on people and can see is this a component, but even without the diagnostic component, we could assume statistically this is implicated in <clears throat> the vast majority of people that are struggling with chronic health problems. Mm -hmm. So, um, sorry, what was the question you said? Asked oh, yeah, some of the um, primary oh, input, causes of, causes of uh, like intestinal permeability. Or, yeah, 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 it was a transient brain fog right there. Not sorry. sorry. <laughs> 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 My gut bugs are rebelling right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. So the, the most common cause, I mean, it's, it's, I, it's so most people know this already, but it's, we have to look at food. I mean, the food is where it starts for many people. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking at the low-hanging fruit, it's going to be foods. Every food we eat is going to either feed gut health or feed gut health problems, which will in turn feed health or feed health problems. Hippocrates, most people know this, but he said all disease begins in the gut. And now really we're substantiating good old Hippocrates with some randomized controlled trials and lots of exciting <laughs> research. He, he, he just knew it. Because he's the father of modern medicine, and I'm right. not. Not he just <laughs> thought without an electron microscope, he knew <laughs> yeah, it. He just exactly. knew it. He just knew it. It was just studying people. I mean, that was science, right? It was just like thousands mm. of people saw the same connections, and now we know the mechanisms. But yeah, you have to look at food. Foods that are disruptive to the microbiome, which a lot of it has to do with what research is referred to as an evolutionary mismatch, right? It's a genetic epigenetic mismatch, which mm. is not just our genetics, it's the microbiome's genetics, which mm. we, as you mentioned, we co-evolved with. Yeah. And it's a symbiotic relationship. And in many ways, I think we may be more of the yeah, we we may. I think of the '90s cartoon uh, Krang. You know, remember the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where Krang mm -hmm. was the brain that lived inside this like robot that was just a hollow shell without the brain. That's kind of us in the microbiome. Like we would not be able to make neurotransmitters or convert hormones or yeah. function without it. So I think we uh, actually need it more than it needs us. Yeah. Well, and from a bacteria's eye view of the universe, they like us. Yeah, because we help them get around, propagate, and continue to live. Yeah. and create an anaerobic environment for yeah, them. Yeah, we to can nestle transport in. them. Yeah, and we're a host for them, a sophisticated host for them. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Anyways, there's, um, I mean, the gut 
microbiome is just a topic that is sort of endless and fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it also brings up all sorts of, you know, more philosophical questions. Yeah. Of like, you know, like, is there a real self when a hundred trillion cells or 40 trillion cells, mm-hmm. however many there are, um, are so transient. They're just coming and going every mm-hmm. 20 minutes to 24 hours or however long. And, you know, they outnumber our just our non-redundant genes by like, mm-hmm. I don't know, 150 times yeah. or something like that. So what does it even mean to be a cell? Yeah. <laughs> or when you think of the mitochondria, the cellular yeah. energy factories are remnants of bacteria. That's right. <laughs> They're descendants of bacteria. Yeah. They're not even human. That's Our right. very cellular energy isn't even human. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing is such a trip. This little purple bacteria that goes into the archaea and that yeah. tries to engulf it and he says no. And they still sort of look that way because the, the, there's an outer membrane yeah, and an right. inner membrane. And they crosstalk with the microbiome. Yeah. Which is yeah. Yeah, trippy. And we're just understanding the scratching the surface of really what's going on right now on a cellular microbiome level. Right. So sugar, obviously a villain as it pertains to maintaining good yeah. gut flora processed yeah. refined sugar in absence of fiber right definitely extra uh, you know it, it's part of that evolutionary mismatch our ancestors would not have consumed this yeah. yet we are consuming these foods if you want to call them that are really out of alignment with our cells and our microbiome both of them mm-hmm. so yeah what i call the inflammatory core four are the four things that are the most i guess tampered with and the most overconsumed that are contributing to that mismatch would be gluten containing grains, mm-hmm. hybridized, sprayed with glyphosate. It's a, yeah. it's not just the gluten really. It's what we've done to it and the overconsumption of it and not preparing it properly as far as sprouting, fermenting it. Right. Um, industrial seed oils like canola oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil, overconsumption of it. It's a polyunsaturated fatty acid. There's nothing inherently wrong with polyunsaturated fatty acids. Omega fat, like when people talk about omega threes, that's a A poofa. That's a (laughs) poofa. It's the modern Western diet just overconsumes it and it's not in its whole food form. So the omega three, six, nine poofa ratio is out of balance, which can be pro-inflammatory. And a dairy is one of those things that there's nothing wrong with dairy, but what we've done is we've homogenized it, we fed the cow foods that it's not evolved with as far as being more grain-fed, not grass-fed. So there are better versions to that too as far as the A2 plus the kefirs, the yogurts, and um, all of that stuff. Um, And uh, the the last one would be, what didn't I say? Sugar, grains, dairy. dairy. And there's a fourth one, well, industrial seed oils. I did, yeah. Oh, yeah, you said And then one. plus one, if I had to say the plus one would be alcohol. I knew you were going to say I, that. God <laughs> damn it. Get out of here, Will. <laughs> right, I'm leaving. <laughs> um, no, no, I know. Uh, you we, know you, what's you, the alcohol. It's the truth. I know. Well, it's a poison, right? It's a neurotoxin. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not saying like those five things, I'm not saying people can't consume them. They just, I would look at your relationship with them and say, does it love me back? And maybe in small amounts, they can be a part of somebody's healthy lifestyle. Right. And there are better for you versions to all of those things. Right. Like organic, biodynamic, regenerative wine, low that's low alcohol is going to be less offensive than a, something that's not that. Right. 
And same with the dairy and the industrial seed oils and the grains are better versions for all of those. And is it the, is the dairy mostly for the reasons that you say we've basically, you know, inoculated our cows with all sorts of antibiotics and they're probably in some sort of amygdala hijacked state as it is. So they're, you know, hormonally irregular. And then, of course, we force fed them grains and mm-hmm. made them fat, you know, you know unnecessarily yeah they live in these concentrated animal feeding operations that cannot possibly be helpful and or healthful in fact if you look at the possibility for the next pandemic you might look there Mm -hmm. but is it but is it those things or is it like the lactose well it's the dairy protein casein from most of those when you're looking at what i mean even with farms and companies that are having conversations and putting out a2 milk it's the beta a2 casein that is ancestrally mm. it's the og casein it's the original gangster <laughs> of caseins because it's the, it's less it's more in alignment with our microbiome and our and our mitochondria right. so it's it's decreasing that evolutionary mismatch by eating what our ancestors would have consumed and what our microbiome is more adapted to so i think it's the casein more and that it's proteins really when you look at all of the food reactivities mm-hmm. right it is a uh mo- we can talk about the sugar too because that still is an issue for some people but it's a casein reactivity or egg whites it's the albumin that can be a reaction for some people and i love eggs there's nothing wrong with eggs but this is bio individuality and this is what i do in functional medicine is finding out what your body loves and there are things that for whole foods healthy foods humans foods that would have eaten for a long time that may not work for you at this point in your health journey. And same with a lot of plant proteins. A lot of plant proteins, it's the proteins that are irritating because that's what's passing through the gut lining in the cases of leaky gut syndrome, mm. triggering these food sensitivities. The mm. lactose is an issue for some people. It is a higher um, FODMAP food, which are the fermentable, fermentable sugars that people that have SIBO, those bacterial overgrowth that I talked about earlier, they do have issues with dairies from a sugar standpoint. Mm-hmm. Just like they have problems with high, high FODMAP vegetables like onions and garlic and cruciferous vegetables. It's, there's nothing wrong with any of those foods, but again, bio-individuality. And there's going to be some foods that work well for one person that may cause digestive bloating or IBS issues or skin flare-ups or fatigue, neurological symptoms when you're consuming a food that doesn't love you back right now. But for in those cases, I would say the lactose issue and or a higher FODMAP vegetable or fruit issue, normally I can, when we get the gut more resilient, we can do reintroduction. Mm-hmm. So you can reintroduce better versions of dairy, better versions of, I mean, you can, uh, vegetables and fruits that are higher FODMAP with no issue. The food sensitivities that are protein mediated, you can reintroduce those sometimes, but they're less likely to because the immune system kind of remembers. It's not so much an enzyme deficiency, which a food intolerance, like a lactose intolerance is really a lactase deficiency. So it's not really immune mediated as much as these autoimmune inflammation issues are. Okay, what about like proton pump inhibitors, NSAIDs, antibiotics, this whole yeah, other world? That's a part of it, right? And, and that's what came first, the chicken or the egg too, right? They're taking those because there's some dysfunction 
but they come with the price tag too of potential side effects. And people just have to have informed consent, I think is important knowing what they are potential risk factors and then deciding for yourself and with your doctor, if that's appropriate, what is it better? Like what's worse? Like, is it causing more problems than it's worse? Mm-hmm. than it's worth. Mm-hmm. And um, some people just take these things flippantly and they don't realize, oh, wow, there are more effective options that cause that don't cause all these potential side effects. Like for people that are taking PPIs or pe- taking, you know, uh, you know, Tums or something like that, what's actually causing the problem in the first place? Right. And in the case of acid reflux, GERD, oftentimes it's hypochlorhydria. It's decreased hydrochloric acid driven by dysbiosis and SIBO. So when you actually fix the SIBO, you don't actually, you can build HCL production over time so your body can properly digest and absorb these foods. Mm. So root cause. Yeah, root cause. But you're right. PPIs, NSAIDs, all have been shown to increase leaky gut syndrome and create digestive problems which can impact your mood. Got it. Okay. Give us a few key foods then that we should be looking at to upregulate gut function. Well, I mean, you have some down here. I'm you gonna want to look at them. Yeah, let's look at them. Well, this is probably like the granddaddy of them all. So, <laughs> granddaddy. Um, this is Krang right here. So, yeah, for folks that are just listening to the audio and not watching on, on YouTube or some other place, we have just produced a um, beautiful uh, mason jar of sauerkraut that. We, we make here. We just ferment it upstairs. It's as easy as could be. <laughs> yeah. So how do you, what's your pro tips here? Fermented, I mean, a lot of people are overwhelmed by like doing this themselves. I mean, and this I, is, I, yeah, this is as simple as, I mean, this one's actually has no, because sometimes we do cucumbers, you know, that sort of mm-hmm. become pickles along the way um, in the fermentation process. But this is just chopped cabbage, some salt in a big crock, you know, we put some weight on it. So, you know, you basically drain the water out and it takes maybe like a week to 10 days. And, um, and there you have it. And you can, I mean, literally you can put this as a garnish on every meal. Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing about it is that obviously it's fermented. So there's a probiotic component Mm -hmm. to it, but it's also fiber. So there's prebiotic component. And actually, I'll ask you this. I don't know the question, but because there is live bacteria in there and there is prebiotics, there might be some postbiotics yeah. in there too. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, for sure. Um, so all that is true. I mean, it's um, so you want to talk about things that people can bring into their diet, into their meals as medicine to support that gut brain axis and improve vagal tone. It's fermented foods. Start off low and slow. If somebody is new to this, my my pro tip here would be it's a modulator of the gut microbiome. And for somebody that has digestive issues or symptoms, test it as even a teaspoon. I mean, I have some patients that just do sauerkraut juice mm. at the beginning. Like don't take any prebiotics, right. especially if they have SIBO. You might want to uh, test what is somebody's reactivity to these things because we want these foods to modulate the microbiome. We want this to happen. But it, going too fast too soon can create Herxheimer, die-off symptoms, and kind of exacerbate symptoms, but you don't want, um, certainly for somebody who's already not feeling well. Um, so sauerkraut juice can be a starting point. You could just like pour that yeah. mason jar in a cup. And they sell, if you want, if you don't want to make it yourself, there, there are health food brands out there that just sell the sauerkraut juice for that reason. Hmm. 
um, without the fiber. And then from there, lean into small amounts, teaspoons at a time. And like you said, use it as a garnish, use it on top of a dish, any dish. It's going to really elevate the taste with that sort of tart taste. But it's also good gut bacteria. It's good for your gut microbiome because the prebiotics which are the fibers from that cabbage, just like any other fiber that you're getting from fruits and vegetables or legumes, et cetera. They are um, providing your bacteria the food it needs to fr to consume. It's it's what our microbiome eats. And it, it ferments that fiber and makes those postbiotics that you mentioned, which are needed for the immune system and needed for our, you know, so many things, brain health as well. Yeah. Um, but things like butyrate and propionate and acetate, these postbiotics are really helpful from a brain health standpoint. And last time we talked, I think we talked about ketosis and the gut actually produces something that's very similarly related to beta hydroxybutyrate mm. in the gut endogenously with fermenting fiber called butyrate. So it's, it's related to ketones and they have similar oh. benefits. Huh. I Actually, never put that together. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. So you yeah. can make it through the liver in ketosis mm -hmm. and fasting, yep. you know, fasting in the ketogenic diet, and you can make it in your gut. And they both have similar mechanisms. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. I learned something. That's hard to do. I just taught Jeff Krasnow something. No. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> no. It's not really they? hard to do. No, this is the story <laughs> of my life. Is, yeah, I'm, I'm a walking public experiment and learning. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, you know, we talk about all of the, the, you know, essentially our gut bugs as, as part of living kind of within this holobiont or superorganism that this thing is here. And they're producing all these things like butyrate, as you said, which, for example, like upregulates insulin sensitivity. Yeah. So that can keep blood sugar levels under control. Yes. And, you know, when your blood sugar levels get out of control, man, there's just like endless slew of mishaps that mm -hmm. can that can happen there. So I think we have a good idea of how our gut can impact certain other systems in our body, particularly our psychology and our mood and our brain. But what about the other way around? Mm -hmm. What is that other by that other, um, you know, south the lane that's going south mm -hmm. on the highway? Yeah. What are some of the uh, ways that our brain or our mind or our psychology mm -hmm. can impact our physiology? Yeah. So it's, a lot of what gut feelings is about is about these what I call metaphysical meals, like either healthy metaphysical meals or these really saboteurs. And it's a lot more nonlinear, more abstract, more complex to talk about, right? But things like chronic stress and what that even means and unresolved trauma and what I call shame flammation in the book, like how do things that cause shame like unresolved trauma and chronic stress and body shame and food shame and stress about healthy foods like orthorexia. How do those things <laughs> impact our biochemistry? How do they raise inflammation levels? How do they, how do they de dysregulate that neuroimmunoendocrine axis just as much as a food that doesn't love us back, which it's going to, it, it's, it's pervasive, but it's a lot more, okay, it's easier for me to say, okay, eat these foods that, that have been shown to support X, Y, and Z. Don't have these ones because they've been shown to sabotage X, Y, and Z. But it's a lot more complex to say, well, don't have 
shame. You know, don't have, just drop that trauma, <laughs> please. You yeah. don't have it next time, please. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. So we have to really cultivate what are ways that we can metabolize stored trauma. What are ways we can clear this out and retrain our nervous system, retrain our brain to be more in a parasympathetic state and support vagal tone from that side as well. And that's why, in part, why I called the book Gut Feelings. It's physiological gut mm-hmm. and psychological feelings. So both and, not either or, is how you deal with chronic inflammatory problems, metabolic issues, and um, brain health issues. So yeah, it's Im- it's important. And then like a third piece I, I, I see clinically is our... Um, biotoxins and environmental toxins, which will sabotage both. It will sabotage both. It'll decrease migrating motor complex, which will breed these bacterial overgrowths. It'll impact the brain because they are neurotoxins, many of them. But quantifying things like glyphosate in the body or quantifying mold toxins or other pathogenic issues are also, it's almost like a triad. You know, you know, you have to look at food and then the feeling stuff and then the um, environmental component too. Mm-hmm. So I think we're all fairly familiar with this idea of fight or flight um, as a biological kind of feature in the system, not mm-hmm. a bug in the system per se. You know, a snake slithers across the floor. Um, a real a, snake. A real snake not in this poop. case, not a poop. <laughs> not Although a I, they might have the same impact, depending. <laughs> not for you. You're sort of, you're so inured <laughs> to poop. And I was, I'm a dad, so, yeah, you know, yeah. I had a lot of poop in my life. Yeah. But um, the snake slithers across the floor, and boom, we're programmed to go into like yeah. you know what I you know uh, sort of our amygdala gets triggered, et cetera, mm-hmm. and it starts this endocrine cascade. So maybe talk about just that the HPA axis, yeah, and then how modern modernity has sort of taken what was sort of a biological feature yeah. and made it somewhat maladaptive. Yeah, exactly. So there's nothing wrong with the sympathetic aspect of the autonomic nervous system. It's It kept us alive. We would not be here with a healthy nervous system response, a healthy fight or flight or freeze response. But it's that evolutionary mismatch again, right? It's we are being chased by that proverbial predator perpetually, right? And that is, that's the issue. Um, and that's our body believes and it's acting as if it's under threat by something that is going to go away, but it just never goes away because of this misalignment, because of this chasm between genetics and epigenetics. So yeah, it is, um, that's what's at play there. So what's happening on a physiological level is you're in this sympathetic fight or flight freeze, uh, state is that neuro immuno endocrine axis, the intersection between the nervous system the immune system, i.e. inflammation, endocrine system, i.e. hormones, is responding to that threat, whether it's a physiological threat or a psychological threat or both. So there's things we talked about in the gut, environmental toxins, or it's unresolved trauma that's happened years ago, but it's living in your body as if it's still happening now. All of that, either physiological and or psychological threat, will put your body more into that stressed state, which will impact the sympathetic it'll increase the sympathetic so think of it like a seesaw the sympathetic fight or flight is increased the parasympathetic resting digesting hormone balanced state is decreased and inflammation levels typically will come up cortisol levels and adrenaline are increased are increased 
through what's called, as you mentioned, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So it's raised, impacting your blood sugar, impacting your blood pressure to get you out there. It's increasing your heart rate so to protect you. Um, and cortisol also acts as an endogenous immunosuppressant. So it's actually a right. natural anti-inflammatory. So the body is still trying to create homeostasis within that state. Goldilocks state. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a maelstrom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have to deal with what's, what is the threat? What is the threat for your body? What is stressing your body out? And that you, you know, for some people, for most of us, it's going to be a bit of both the physiological and the psychological threat. You know, there's some unresolved trauma, stored trauma in the body, some chronic stress in our current life, and some physiological issues like gut issues, environmental toxins, both and need to be dealt with both the gut and the feelings Mm -hmm. for some people they are unicorns and they just have one or the other and you know it's their their stress levels are low their ace score is low which is like childhood experiences that we look at um and it's just the bacterial overgrowth it's just some foods they have to clean up yeah for most people it's a little bit more complex than that Can you unpack how you understand shame mm. specifically? Because you talk about shame inflammation. Yeah. And shame as a source of kind of this dysregulation or hormonal dysregulation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what is shame? How do you understand that, that so idea? I see shame as it's different than guilt in the sense of people like will conflate those two words or like, Oh, I'm, I feel guilty. You know, there are some things that are, I think a normal, healthy, actually emotion to have when it comes to guilt. Like if I did someone to unintentionally hurt you, or if I said something out of anger or reaction, I should feel guilty about saying that. And that's what the whole act of forgiveness and self-compassion and compassion all has to do with, which is a normal human experience. But shame is a, an indictment on who you are versus mm. what you do. Mm. Like I, I, I said something rude or rash and I hurt you, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I feel guilty about that versus saying I'm a bad person for doing that and this is my very nature, which is shame. And when you're talking about the topics of unresolved trauma, that's what many of them feel is mm-hmm. that this is there's something inherently broken or dysfunctional or unlovable and not worthy. And that is what shame is. Mm. It's they mistake it for who they truly are, which is uh, deception. Mm. That distinction is wonderfully articulated. This idea that guilt is really related to an action. Yeah. But shame is related to yourself mm-hmm. and those feelings of uh, self-loathing or not being good enough, um, you know, that can lead to a lot of social isolation, a lot of loneliness. Um, mm-hmm. I just read a study from BYU that, um, that posits that loneliness or subjective loneliness is equivalent um, to smoking 15 cigarettes a day for yeah. your physiology. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. just as bad as alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is tied up with shame, right? And, and Absolutely. And so how, what are the main forces at large these days that 
you think are responsible for people feeling that sense of shame? Well, I think it's multifactorial, right? And I think it's not a modern human issue in many ways. I think it's a, it's a, uh, it's a it's a deception that many people have felt for eons, right? Mm-hmm. But I do feel like in our modern world, it's amplified in an interesting new way that we have never expressed, and that's the component that social media plays on shame and on lack and loneliness, and that's all kind of tied into each other. And similar studies, I, I read that study about the smoking 15 50 cigarettes a day is equivalent like that's how deadly loneliness can be and shame is tied into that completely and um is the more social media people use especially younger like brains uh, young adults and kids certainly i mean it, that's a, i don't want to get on a tangent here but basically if the, the united states government is advising to wait until high school for social media for kids. What's the actual age we should be waiting for? Yeah, right. That's the question. Yeah. That's the question. But the, cause they're, if anything, being yeah. as PC as possible, which, yeah. you know, or, or as lenient, as to lenient, tech. as lenient to tech and, you know, as yeah, broad spectrum, right. generalized advice as possible. That's a different subject, yeah. but you know, I think it's important for us, no matter what age you are, What's your relationship with technology? And is it used in a way that's out of alignment with your nervous system, your your neuroimmunoendocrine axis? Because we Mm -hmm. see these highlight reels, these filtered highlight reels that create this, in many ways, this sense of community, quote unquote. But it's really not the same. It's out of alignment with this from an evolutionary standpoint. And it's really creating a lot of loneliness because there's this keyboard warrior culture component to it where you can say things you'd never be able to say right in, in front of somebody but it's really impacting this loneliness where you're hyper connected but actually very disconnected yeah absolutely well i think theodore roosevelt said comparison is the invisible thief of joy mm. something like that and this go. was a good hundred years before social media yeah um and you know if you're conflating or connecting shame with feelings of not being good enough or low self-worth well there's nothing like comparison to exacerbate that right yeah and so then okay what's going on there so you're living living in a place of loneliness the more lonely you are the more perceived threat you feel Mm -hmm. um and by extension the more activation of this hpa axis there's going to be and then here you are on some emotional ro- or emotional but hormonal roller coaster, and it's really interesting. I mean, you, you also point to some of the epigenetic components of trauma and stress, the transgenerational mm. heritability of these things, mm-hmm. um, and it's fascinating. I'm, I'm sure you looked at Rachel Yehuda's work, for mm-hmm. example, where she's studying the Holocaust victims in Cleveland, Ohio, mm-hmm. um, where there's high prevalence of PTSD. And strangely, low cortisol levels, mm-hmm. right? Because we would associate stress mm-hmm. and trauma with chronic high cortisol levels. But over time, mm-hmm. through either you know wear and tear or feedback loops that basically get sent back up, mm-hmm. the adrenals stop actually functioning very well. Yeah. And then the receptors 
the for those um steroid hormones actually get hypersensitive mm -hmm. and then you're just like crazy yeah um you get into a very dysregulated state and in some fashion i'm still actually trying to dissect how this all works but methyl groups essentially hypermethylate certain mm -hmm. genes that are associated with that process of hormone creation and that's actually somehow either through RNA and sperm or some mm. fashion passed down, passed gener down generation, generation to generation. And it's just like, you're not only responsible for your own mental sanity, but for your children's Great grandmas. Yeah. Great grandmas, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's funny you mentioned Cleveland and Holocaust survivors. I was in Cleveland the other week talking about this stuff, and there mm. was a group of Ukrainian women, because one of the other mm. subsets of research yeah. was the Holodomor right. in the early 20th century, where Joseph Stalin was, you know, subjugating basically a man-made famine and was starved and killed the Ukrainian people. Mm -hmm. And um, and they it's I mean, this is this is researchers looking at intergenerational, transgenerational uh trauma similar to the Holocaust in Germany and um in Poland. And in the Rwandan people with the Hutus and the Tutsi people are looked at as well. Yeah. But anyways, the, the Ukrainian women came up to me sobbing and said, hey, not many people don't even know about this genocide that happened to the Ukrainian people uh, you know, in the early 20th century. But the fact that they saw that for themselves, what the researchers are looking at, is an increased risk of metabolic issues, trouble losing weight, autoimmune inflammation issues, and mental health issues. So yeah, it is. But as, as I say in the book, as healing, as trauma can be inherited, so can healing. Yes. And you, mm. this can be kind of oh man, this is I it's heavy stuff. Um, well, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, we just have more agency than we were ever led to believe. We were led to believe that like the world of genetic determinism, right? It's sort of like this is how you're coded, yeah. and good luck. <laughs> and then, mm -hmm. and then there's nurture, which is real difficult too. <laughs> And off you go. Yeah. But, you know, all this epigenetics and microbiome, even neuroplasticity, you know, all of these emerging fields of study are showing that we're actually not fixed. Right. I mean, it's 70, like in the 70, depending on the study that you look at, it's anywhere between 70% to 91% of how long, how healthy somebody lives is due to the choices that people make. So mm -hmm. you, someone asked me, well, do I have to know if it's intergenerational, transgenerational trauma, <laughs> or is it me? Not necessarily. Yeah, not if really. anything, I think the research around that, I hope, gives people some grace on themselves and some lightness to know, oh, wow, I'm not just a broken person. I'm not mm -hmm. just like, I'm not just a mess up. It's just there may be things that you can't even see in this lifetime that are impacting how and why and your health where you're at right now, but you can undo it no matter, you know, how heavy the things are. I've seen people up against seemingly insurmountable things overcome them. Mm -hmm. And part of it's intergenerational. Part of it is life experiences that you've had in this life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, just as my own end of one experiment, um, you know, I, I put on a continuous glucose monitor about a year and a half ago or so. And uh, I was under the impression that I was a very, very healthy human being. Um, I was exercising and eating like what I thought was pretty well. And lo and behold, I was basically pre-diabetic. I was running very, very high blood glucose levels. And, you know, it was curious. I started trying to like pull it apart. Um, and yes, I certainly modified my diet for sure. And that helped. But, you know, as I started to really try to understand 
you know, some of the root causes of what was going on, why I was running 125, 130 uh, milliliter per deciliter fasting glucose levels, and then experiencing like massive postprandial spikes, like up to 200 all the time. I was like, what is going on? And essentially, I just built insulin resistance over progressively over 15, 20 years of essentially from stress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is that the only contributor or determinant? Maybe, probably not. You know, I was probably maybe having like a few too many cookies after dinner or something mm-hmm. like that. Certainly my sleep was compromised. But if I really look at like then the protocols that I adopted since that time mm-hmm. for self-care, specifically around stress, mm-hmm. specifically around meditation and breathing, and mm-hmm. hopefully we can talk about a few of those protocols that you recommend in the book, I was really able to, what I can best understand, reduce my levels of stress, reduce cortisol, which is directly um, associated with raising blood sugar levels. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge part of it. And also, I think, fix my gut in the process. And, um, and a lot of that was just my ability to manage and process stress. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of even you saying, well, I'm st- stressed and, you know, then it's maybe I had too many cookies too. But isn't it, I see this... So- so often with patients is that when they are in a stress state, they're more likely to go for the cookies, right? right? They are stress eating. So, so much of it is, and stress will impact your sleep too. So it is, uh, right. You're on this spectrum and you're either spiraling this way or you can, (laughs) but you can spiral this way. Yeah. Yeah. You can ascend. Um, um, so let's talk about some of the protocols because, you know, you do have a program specifically a 21 day program in the book, um, around, you know, both food protocols, but also feelings protocols. I'm not sure I categorize that properly, Mm -hmm. but um, take us through some of those kind of on both sides. Yeah, sure. So it's a 21 day protocol that is meant to look when I'm talking about unresolved trauma or chronic stress, I'm not saying that you're going to completely undo all your unresolved trauma in 21 days. But what I want you to show, I want to show you is what this, what's exciting science show that are, effective ways to regulate that neuroimmunoendocrine axis. So you can stay consistent with the tools that you love the most or resonate with you the most. You can stay consistent with the most. So you can see these changes over weeks and months and years for some people, but to continue to heal and continue to work on these things that are complex. So every day there's a gut tool and a feelings tool. So you have a physiological, clinical nutrition, food as medicine Mm -hmm. tool, And then on the feeling side, it's some sort of mind-body somatic practice, some therapy that has been shown to support that vagal tone, support that neuroimmunoendocrine axis. So, um, for example, on a nutrition day, on a a gut action item day, every day there's a gut and a feelings, but on one day... For gut, I talk about soups and stews, right? Which mm. is something that we use clinically a lot for people that have gut brain axis issues. And we adapt versions of what's called a GAPS protocol, which is an acronym GIPS, gut and psychology syndrome, or gut and physiology syndrome, i.e., you know, gut, the gut inflama- inflammation axis, mm. or the gut brain axis, depending on what you're talking about, either autoimmune issues 
or anxiety, depression, fatigue, autism, um, ADHD, brain fog. So we use soups and stews as a way to be a nutritional support for the gut-brain axis and improve as you lower inflammation and give the gut a reprieve, a proverbial siesta, I think of it as for your digestive system, you're going to improve vagal tone over time. Mm. And you're going to help that neuroimmunoendocrine axis, that crosstalk between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut. So by not having lots of raw foods, you're allowing your gut to repair, which digesting foods, even healthy foods, can be a a lot of work. And by giving, and this is nothing new, right? I mean, this is, we call it gaps now in, in, in nutrition. And we, but (laughs) if you look at Ayurvedic medicine and traditional Chinese medicine, this is nothing new. I mean, soups Mm -hmm. and stews have been used ancestrally for thousands of years for these gut brain axis issues. So we are just, now we know why it's working and it's a very effective intervention from a nutrition Mm -hmm. standpoint. And is this just because it it requires less energy to digest or metabolize soups? Exactly. So instead of breaking down all those fibers, all those proteins, everything's a lot, it's soft, it's cooked. I even have some patients puree vegetables down. Do you ever have kitchery? Do you like kitchery? No, I don't know. I got to turn you on to kitchery. Tell me about kitchery. Oh, it's an in traditional Indian sort okay. of mung bean, mm, suey, yeah, stoopy soup. Mung beans, <laughs> mung stew. beans, and lentils are actually two of the best, most digestible, agreeable legumes. Mm. I find mung beans and lentils. Again, mm. right? Yeah. Our ancestors knew some things. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like the height of hubris, right? To be that we were we're somehow so sophisticated, but we're just remembering things that they would have called life, right? Yeah. Um, but well, we always discover yoga. Yeah. Or discover <laughs> local organic yeah. food, or discover meditation. Yeah. Well, I, I was something. <laughs> what was it? Uh, such an. Uh, ethos of commune is the try old and old and true old yeah. and true that's yeah, what it yeah. was yeah right, right. so that's what these are right yeah. and and even times of fasting is reparative to the gut brain axis too so these are things we can lean into from a gut side and on a feeling side i mean every day every there's 21 different tools but breath work is one of them i talk about holotropic breath work in the book and i mean i'm speaking to the master here but just a way to use breath to metabolize stored trauma in the body and talk about somatic practices. Yoga, Tai Chi would be under that category. Uh, drumming, dance, tapping can all be uh, considered that. Um, and I talk about EMDR, the research around mm. that type of therapy, all as a way to regulate the nervous system and strengthen that vagus nerve. I'm not sure where I heard this, but it made so much sense when I did. It might have been from you. Um, that it's it, that we aren't just what we eat, but we are actually what we absorb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and, say that a lot. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah. a lot of folks yeah. are eating in front of the TV by themselves or even worse, or maybe in their car or even worse on, while they're actually scrolling through social media. Why would do and doing any of those things actually... Uh, inhibit one's ability to actually properly absorb food. Yeah, and it's it's part of our culture, right? It's distracting and numbing, but it's 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 contributing to that sympathetic 
overactivation, which is already overactivated. So going yeah. back to that seesaw analogy, if that sympathetic's already overactive and you're doing something that's perpetuating the overactivation, it is not conducive to that resting digesting. So yeah. eating mindfully whenever possible to be using, I mean, I, I actually, in the book, I talk about using meals as medicine, but as a meditation as well. So mm. like take that five, 10, 15 minutes as a mindfulness ex experience too, there's so many benefits, but one of it, just on a practical level, is supporting the parasympathetics. You can actually digest your food because you're right. We aren't just what we eat. We are what we absorb. Yeah. And I see many people that think, I'm supplementing all the right supplements. <laughs> I'm eating all the right foods. But I, they're serving their body that big slice of stress every day, and they're, they're still nutrient deficient. Yeah. I look at labs, and their magnesium, selenium, iodine, vitamin D, iron are all low. Well, why mm. is that? And part of that is in supporting that that gut brain axis, so your body can absorb foods appropriately. Mm, yeah, I mean, I've tried to start to. Um, I mean, I I hear my kids um, uh, in it <laughs> from the distance, so they're perfect timing to bring them in. We have a nightly ritual around the dinner table called Rosebud Thorn, where we all report back on the rose, the bud, and the thorn of our day. And that just kind of brings us down and brings us into connection. And then we start eating from that parasympathetic state. People say grace, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, people have a gratitude practice before they yeah. put something in their mouth. That's a really nice one. Just to look down at your food, to take a few breaths, to appreciate all of the toil and labor that went into it, the miracle that it even exists in the first place, mm -hmm. and just hmm, stop. And and then the knock-on impact of that is actually good digestion. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah and the research yeah. I talk about in the book of, of self-compassion and gratitude, yeah, it's very conducive to the parasympathetic, and it lowers inflammation levels because of that, because we are working on these mechanisms. Mm -hmm. You have a couple of specific breathwork um modalities in there i noticed that you mentioned the four seven eight which mm -hmm. i often associate with old school dr andrew weil mm -hmm. but um what's that one what's the four seven eight well it's it's going in and out using counting and you don't it doesn't have to be specific four seven eight i mean i love i do the box breathing probably more than anything yeah where you're just breathing in uh for four seconds you could do however time you want and then holding for that same amount of time and then exhaling for the same amount of time but four seven eight they're just all different ways to use inhale inhalation exhalation as a timing as a centering it's a way to ground getting you out of your head into your body and using breath as an anchor in meditation yeah and even just becoming conscious of yeah. your breath you're right 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 absolutely yeah because I mean, and I'm a culprit of this, but I think most of us in the modern world, we take these like short, snippy little breaths. I mean, yeah. generally not even through our nose. <laughs> no, and right? you watch so. a baby breathing and these belly breaths and babies that we just lose, right? Mm -hmm. We want to suck it in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not that sweet baby. Not yeah. That sweet, yeah. Well, you talk about belly breathing as well. Yeah. What's that? You just put your, you yeah, put your hand, put your on, hand your... on your stomach. It's such a yogic thing, right? It's yeah. to to actually see your stomach expand and contract. It's a great way to support vagal tone. And that's why babies have such regulated nervous systems until we, until this sad world messes them up. <laughs> we have to heal ourselves again. 
So any favorite recipes that, that you have? Because there's a significant amount of uh, wonderful... Yeah, 50 plus recipes, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so many. I mean, I, I love anything... I am partial to things that have eggs in them. I know mm -hmm. eggs don't work for everybody, but I love eggs. I love eggs that involve because the egg yolk has choline in it, which is a precursor to acetylcholine. Mm -hmm. And I just see these methyl donors mention methyl donors and you know yeah, methylation. methylation. I I yeah. see high homocysteine levels in a lot of labs. Mm -hmm. So if I can get something that has folate and B12 and choline and these other precursors to neurotransmitters that will not only help brain support, but help to recycle down something like homocysteine levels, which is an inflammatory protein. So there are several egg recipes that I love. Um, I We have this one, it's like a bowl um, that has, it's actually it has rice in it, which uh, my other um, books didn't have grains, but mm -hmm. I wanted to make this a little bit more flexible for people because it's really a conversation about healing your relationship with food right. and healing your relationship. So I, I put some gluten-free grains in here for people because I do fine with gluten-free grains. I do fine with rice. I do fine with mung beans and lentils as far as legumes are concerned. Um, so it's something for everybody as far as recipes are concerned. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about the book and you and your tone in general is that, I mean, you're not trying to like nanny state anyone. No. <laughs> it's like no. have a couple of cookies if you want with a friend and really, really enjoy it. Yeah. And and treasure that moment. Just, you know, be aware of it and treasure it and don't feel any shame exactly. connected to it because as you say shame is prob is actually worse for you probably than the cookie yeah itself. yeah exactly and i you, you, a practice that i talk about in the book is when you use your meals as a medicine and meditation you can kind of be your own end of one experiment like you said and say okay well how did this food make me feel maybe it made you feel a little bloated and fatigued so use that as a mindfulness experiment and an experience of saying was it worth it? Maybe you were hanging out with your friends and family and the community, which is healing, yeah. was worth it. Then eat it and move on. Like you said in the book, like shame is worse than any food that doesn't love you back. But you may decide, oh, you know what? This really wasn't worth it for me. This bloating, these digestive problems, this fatigue, whatever we're talking about, wasn't worth it. I can socialize and have community in a more <laughs> way that loves me back. Yeah, and you'll you grow in awareness either way. It's not about shame. This is not a moral judgment or moral indictment. This is really about feedback, body talk. What's your body saying to you? Mm. And, and that's going to ever evolve because your microbiome is ever evolving. Your life status as far as stress and all of your life situations is impacting that neuroimmunoendocrine axis is evolving. So no, I appreciate that. And yeah, the, the recipes are all whole, whole food based. They're all clean, nutrient dense, bioavailable, nutrient dense foods. But it's not like a, um, there's no like label on what I'm trying to talk about as far as like this is paleo or that's keto or vegan or vegetarian. It's just good food. And I want people to experiment for themselves. Hmm. Fantastic. Well, Gut feelings. Everyone should pick it up. I really, really enjoyed it. I listened to it on Audible. I appreciate that you read it too. I do. Yeah, um, that's a pain. A, I mean, it's yeah. a labor of love, I should say, but it's a lot. Yeah, of but talking. I think it's actually really important because I yeah. really feel that I connect with some yes. of the subtleties of yeah. what your point is. And so I like Thank to listen you. to it and walk through the woods. Um, and <laughs> I'm forced, baby. 
with yeah. Jack. <laughs> you pretty much are. Um, so everyone should get the book. What else are you up to? Just in, in closing, you know, your podcast is just epic. Thank it's you. doing so, so well, um, which is just a, a reflection of, you know, how, what a great conversationalist you are and how engaged you are and how many wonderful people you know and how many people respect you. So well done on every Thank front. You. I know how Appreciate hard that. it is and it's a grind. So, you know, yeah. and it's great. It's gratifying. It's yes, but, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot, but it's all good stuff. It's all ripple effects of my day job and running the telehealth clinic. So yeah. From 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., I'm 99% of the time at my <laughs> telehealth center. We consult people online. We're shipping labs to them and providing them a functional medicine perspective on their case. So that's my, what I'm focused on. And then from that, I get to talk about these things on podcasts or yeah. write a books about it or whatever. Talk on social media. So, yeah, it's the I'm mainly focused on the yeah. telehealth clinic and helping patients. And the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. And there's a new episode out every week. And I, I'm excited to have you on. Yeah. Someday. No, I'll come on. I think it's really admirable that you've stuck. I mean, more than stuck, that you're so invested in your actual practice of mm -hmm. helping people day in and day out. Because I imagine that it would be tempting and, you know, maybe a little bit of a respite to not do that and just be mm -hmm. kind of a quote unquote celebrity doctor that could yeah. write books and go on tours and stuff like that. And a lot of people do that and no judgment there. Right. But the fact is, I think you actually have a, your ear to the ground in a way that maybe some other doctors don't because you're there with patients yeah. every day, all day. And that's how I feel about it. I feel like it's, uh, it keeps me sharp. It keeps me focused on what's important and why I love talking about these things anyways. And yeah, it's, I wouldn't trade it for anything because it's such a, a, a powerful craft to be able to be in a sacred responsibility, truly to be a part of someone's health journey that it's so rewarding. It's just, I wouldn't want to trade it in, but all the other stuff's fun too, but it's to be ancillary. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's the most gratifying part. My, my wife's a yoga teacher Yeah, and you know, she says, you know, to me sometimes like Jeff, what fuels me, the most gratifying part of what I do really happens in private, mm -hmm. you know, True. Yeah. and to actually help people kind of through their challenges and overcome obstacles and, you know, step into their greater potential. That almost happens always kind of behind closed doors, 100%. not in front of a video camera, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. And cool. when you, when you're reminded of that, it's like all the pontification and commentary online, it doesn't really matter because you are reminded on an hourly basis, <laughs> like very it's, it's amazing, real. positive things. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, well, you can say whatever you want to say, but it's like truly when you see someone's labs improve and lives improve, hmm. you're reminded very, you're reminded of the, the sacredness of life. And the line between health and health problems is very thin, but to move people on the other side of that is powerful. Hmm. Well, I'm grateful for your work, and I, I know I'm not the only one. So, thank Dr. You, Will friend. Cole, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation with Dr. Will Cole. I urge you to check out Dr. Will Cole's new book, Got Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. 
Okay, I'd like to leave you with a couple key takeaways from the conversation. So number one, the gut and the brain are intimately linked. Number two, chronic stress, trauma, shame, and environmental toxicity can impact the body's underlying biochemistry and lead to inflammatory issues and metabolic problems and brain dysfunction. Number three, resolving physiological and psychological threats is essential for restoring balance and homeostasis in the body. Number four, the vagus nerve plays a significant role in regulating the nervous system. And lastly, improving vagal tone has wide-ranging effects on mood, your immune system, your digestive system, and your energy levels. So if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And if you're a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into this show's creation week over week, and we try to keep sponsors to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts here at Commune, the best way is to subscribe to the course platform. You'll access more than 130 programs featuring the world's top authors and doctors and thought leaders. So you can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make the show possible week over week, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Leda Maliga, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.